We have been in a sermon series uh, over the last several weeks, I think this is part four, called My Blank Home. And basically, we've been spending a lot of time as people in our homes because of the pandemic. A lot of our lives have been consolidated into our homes. And because of that, I I know it's the experience of a lot of people that our homes have kind of gone from this place of rest and peace to more of a place of stress and maybe disappointment because of everything that's going on inside of our home. So what we want to do is just tackle various topics and talk about the culture of our homes and the relationships inside of our homes and just see what does God's word have to say about each of these things. And so this morning, it's time to talk about your marriage. Now, if you're not married, hang with me, okay? Uh, I got something to say there uh, uh, with you, but I know not everyone tuning in is married, but this is relevant to all of us. But I, I do want to ask for those of you who are married, how is the marriage going through this epic year of 2020? A lot of stressors uh, that can come on your marriage. I mean, everything from you're always home, working from the home, kids are going to school in the home, maybe there's stressors on you financially, uh, maybe there's stressors on you politically. Uh, There's a lot of things that can press on your marriage here in 2020. And see, one of the things that's really common in a marriage, whether we're dealing with a pandemic or not, and of course the pandemic is going to exasperate this. Uh, But one of the things that's really common in in a marriage is this. Life gets busy. Uh, You got a career you're navigating. Maybe you have some kids. You're involved in a lot of different things. Finances can be stressful. And your marriage is predictably going to hit a few bumps, maybe big bumps or small bumps. And you're going to have conflict. You're going to hurt each other's feelings. That's inevitable in a marriage. And over time, what can happen is the marriage can begin to cool off a little bit. The romance that existed on the honeymoon just isn't there anymore. You're, you're busy and you're tired from managing life and the marriage just drifts into becoming more like a roommate situation. You know, you're just navigating life together. You're navigating family together, right? But there's really no more affection. There's no more romance in the marriage. Right? So you're just kind of dealing with logistics now. It's like a partnership to handle the logistics of life. And that's kind of what the marriage has descended into. Or, or maybe it's not that for you. Maybe, maybe you've just become more like friends and, and, and less like a married couple where you enjoy life together. You hang out, you talk all the time, but has the romance, the affection, maybe the things that marked your marriage in the beginning gone away. I want all of us to think of marriage uh, like a flower. Um, and, And in order for this flower to bloom and to blossom and to flourish and all of those things, it, it needs to be planted in the right kind of soil with, with plenty of nutrients, plenty of water. But if this flower is planted in dry soil, 
and, and no nutrients are in that soil, then what's going to happen to this flower is it's obviously going to wither and it's going to dry up and, and die. And, and in the same way, your marriage has to be planted in the right soil if it's going to bloom, if it's going to flourish, if it's going to have the kind of romance and affection and the things that you truly desire for your marriage. And whenever we see a marriage begin to die off and, and convert from being a marriage to more of a roommate situation or a marriage to maybe just a friendship situation or maybe even enemies, I think most of the time it's because the marriage has been trying to survive in the soil of expectation. The relationship between the husband and the wife is managed by a culture of expectation. It's planted in a soil of expectation. Here, here's what I mean by that. Right? Each person in the marriage has built up certain expectations on their spouse. Everyone does this. It's almost impossible not to do this. But over time, those expectations do not get consistently met. Even when you talk about them, even when you fight over them, even when you're promised by your spouse that they are going to get better. And because after a long time of being disappointed, it's very easy to get to this place where you're hurt, you're exhausted, you're frustrated, and you're bitter at your spouse. And you, and you kind of hit this point where it's just easier, if we're honest, it's just easier to stop having a marriage and to allow the relationship to slip into something different and easier, like being roommates or just being friends. Because we're tired of being hurt. We're tired of being disappointed. We're tired of feeling like this marriage is impossible. Right? So maybe you expect your spouse to share their feelings with you. And they're just a closed book. Can never crack. Or maybe you expect your spouse to be more helpful around the house. And they never will do anything on their own without being asked. Or maybe you expect more physical affection in your marriage, and it seems like your spouse isn't interested in that. Or maybe you expect your spouse to take care of their appearance a little bit better, and they're not doing that the way that you expect them to do it. Maybe you expect your spouse to just take greater interest in you, in the things that you like, but they don't seem interested. Maybe you expect your spouse just to say nice things about you, and what you feel like you often get is just criticism. And here's the thing with expectation is that when your expectation goes unfulfilled for too long, our defensive instinct in response to our hurt will be to withhold relationship from our spouse. You need to get this. Let me, let me say this one more time, okay? Here's, here's the thing with expectation is when your expectation goes unfulfilled for too long, our defensive instinct in response to our hurt is to withhold relationship 
from our spouse, right? To distance ourselves, not allow ourselves to be too emotionally attached to that person where I'm going to get further hurt and, and disappointed. And so the marriage withers and the romance fades because it was planted in the soil of expectation, which neither had any chance of being able to fulfill. And so both are now withholding relationship out of defense. Does this describe your marriage? Maybe a little bit. Would your spouse maybe describe your marriage this way? And this morning, what I want all of us to discover is that God has a radically different vision for your marriage. God has a vision for your marriage that does include emotional connection, physical connection, romance, affection with one another. God's desire for your marriage is not that you would just be roommates or that you would just be good friends. He wants so much more for your marriage. But God's vision for your marriage is not possible to experience if your marriage is planted in the soil of expectation. And so this morning, I want to teach you God's vision for your marriage and how it's different. But I got to warn you, it's counterintuitive, right? Our reflexes are not going to fire in this direction automatically. At first, you might even be thinking, Alan, what you're teaching today is way too idealistic. But let's just, let's just give it a shot for a second. And before I give you uh, God's vision for your marriage, I just want to say something quickly to those of you who are not married, who are, who are tuning in. I don't tune out, all right? All right don't don't uh, go somewhere else on Facebook or YouTube or, or anywhere else. Because I think what God wants us to learn today is for everyone. So maybe you're not married, but one day you hope to be married. And understanding God's vision for marriage and what that means for you is going to be so helpful as you pursue marriage in the future. So I encourage you to keep listening. But also, if, if you're not married, you're part of the body of Christ too. And you have brothers and sisters who are married and many of them are struggling in their marriages and they need you as a vital brother, a vital sister to understand God's vision for marriage so you can encourage them in that direction. We all need each other to build each other up. So this is for all of us, no matter our situation. So let's lean in and talk about God's vision for marriage. Let me give you a definition. I'm going to put this on the screen for you. God's vision for your marriage is this, all right? That you would lower yourself beneath your spouse to adorn them with righteousness that they may flourish. Let me say that again. God's vision for your marriage is that you would lower yourself beneath your spouse, adorn them with righteousness that they may flourish. Now, I admit, that's a long and weird definition to God's vision for your marriage. So let's break that down into, into three parts, right? What does it mean to lower myself beneath my spouse? And why would I do that? 
two, what does it mean to adorn my spouse with righteousness? That sounds kind of weird, so we'll talk about that. And lastly, what does it even mean for my spouse or my marriage to flourish? So let's take a look. What does it mean to lower yourself beneath your spouse? This is about the posture you take when it comes to the judgments that you make about your spouse, right? Are you above your spouse with a posture almost of like a master where you see yourself as better than them, disappointed in their struggles and their mistakes, filled with expectation upon them that they are not meeting. So that's what it would look like to be above our spouse. Or are you beneath your spouse with more of a posture of a servant? Now, of course, husband and wife are equals in the home, but in our relationship with one another, we tend to posture ourselves at some sort of vantage point to our spouse. And God's vision for you is that you would actually voluntarily take the posture of a servant and lower yourself beneath your spouse. Because what this does when you posture yourself beneath when you take the form of a servant what this does is it cancels out the culture of expectation the soil of expectation and it begins to replace it with a culture a soil of grace now how do i do that how how do i lower myself replace this culture of expectation with a culture of grace Let's talk about the next part of this definition of God's vision of our marriage. So we said lower ourselves beneath our spouse, but then adorn them with righteousness. What does it mean to adorn your spouse with righteousness? Well, what it means to adorn or to clothe someone with righteousness means, listen, and I mean what I'm saying here. I'm not messing up. Treat and regard that person as if they are righteous, even though they're not. That's what it means to adorn someone. Let me say it this way. To treat and regard your spouse as if they have fulfilled all of your expectations, even though they have not. So we're lowering ourselves beneath our spouse into the position of a servant. We are adorning them with righteousness, right? Treating them as if they have fulfilled all of my expectations, even though I have not. And this is in direct contrast to posturing ourselves above our spouse, demanding righteousness from them and withholding relationship from them until they fulfill my expectations. See the difference? The difference between the culture, the soil of expectation, and the culture and the soil of grace? A marriage that is growing in the soil of expectation has both spouses placing themselves under the other. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. A marriage that is growing in the soil of expectations has both spouses placing themselves above the other demanding their expectations to be fulfilled and withholding relationship from one another until they are fulfilled. 
And a marriage that is growing in the soil of grace has both spouses placing themselves beneath the other, adorning the other with righteousness, treating the other as if they have fulfilled all their expectations, even though they haven't. And here's the interesting thing about grace. Creating a culture of grace in your marriage does not mean you don't deal with the problems or let your spouse get away with things that should be addressed. See, grace does not ignore problems. It just goes about handling the problems differently and more effectively than expectation. See, in a culture of expectation, we're addressing problems in the marriage. Yeah, you're confronting those. But we're also withholding relationship. And that poisons the soil and inhibits any sort of growth from happening in your spouse or in your marriage. But in a culture of grace where we are adorning the other with righteousness, what we're saying is this. I'm not going to allow the problems that we need to address to break the relationship. So I'm not going to withhold reflect, uh, affection from you. I'm not going to give you the cold shoulder. I'm not going to talk bad about you behind your back. I'm not going to lose interest in you. No, I'm going to treat you as if you're righteous. And in this culture in soil of grace where our struggles are not threatening our relationship, I now have a safe place to patiently address problems and point my spouse in the direction of true righteousness. And my spouse now has a safe place to grow. And so many couples get stuck because their marriage is rooted in the soil of expectation and their demands for righteousness just get stronger. And the stronger that gets, the more they withhold relationship until the marriage dies. Your marriage and your spouse will only flourish if it's planted in the soil of grace. It cannot grow in the soil of expectation. So what does that mean? What does it mean for my spouse and my marriage to flourish? The third part there, it means that they are in a place now where they can truly grow. The problems in the marriage can actually now be addressed in a healthy way. And the marriage is now growing in emotional and physical connection. See, in a culture of grace, you now become a cheerleader for your spouse's growth instead of a drill sergeant making demands and throwing down ultimatums. In a culture of grace, you now become an encourager, helping your spouse along their journey instead of a discourager, always threatening the relationship. In a culture of grace, the relationship is not contingent upon performance, and that creates a space for where both your marriage and your spouse can flourish. See, in this whole time that we've been talking about God's vision for marriage, we haven't talked about romance once. But that's because what your marriage needs is to reignite the romance, to reignite the affection. It's not romantic tips. It's new soil. Now, 
I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking this right now. Alan, I've got two problems with you right now. Here's my first problem. Yes, that does sound way too idealistic. Like, how do you do that when you're hurt? How do you do that when your spouse refuses to do it in return? How, how does that actually work? Fair question. Totally fair question. I told you we would all think this is a bit too idealistic. But here's my second problem with you, Alan, is you have been talking all about God's vision for marriage, and you have not once opened the Bible. You're right. I haven't opened the Bible yet, and that's not like me. Usually we zero in on one passage for the entire sermon, but I did this on purpose. See, I wanted to cast a vision for your marriage that we would all think is humanly impossible. That's too idealistic. How, how could we ever do that? But let me ask you a question. What illustration does God use in the Bible to explain and describe the relationship that he has with you and me? What's the illustration that God uses to describe the kind of relationship, the kind of way that God loves us? It's marriage. That's the illustration God uses. So let's open the Bible. Look at this, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. This should pop up on your screen. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And he says this is a, a mystery, this union between the husband and the wife. And look at this. He's saying, I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. The marriage relationship between a husband and a wife should be an illustration for the relationship between Christ and the church, between Jesus and his bride, which you are a part of. And so here's what you need to know this morning. This is how God loves you. Everything I've been saying this vision that God has given us for marriage, this is how God loves you. This vision that I cast, this is how God loves you. We have a God who in Christ has lowered himself into a position of a servant. He has adorned us with righteousness so that we may flourish, right? You need to see this. This is Philippians chapter two, verses six to eight. Look at what Paul says about Jesus. This is what Jesus has done for you. It says this, though Jesus was in, look at this, he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right, so, so let's get this straight. You have the God of all creation spoke the universe into place with his words, perfect, righteous, holy, all-powerful, and he lowered himself into the posture of a servant, beneath us 
fickle sinners who, who never fully fulfill God's righteous expectations of us. And we think it's crazy that God's vision for marriage is that we would take the form of a servant, the posture of a servant beneath our spouse. Maybe we say they don't deserve it. Maybe we say they aren't going to do it to me in return. I'll lower myself when they lower themselves. They're just going to take advantage of me if I do that. Yet, we have a God who had every right to deal with us solely from his lofty position in heaven. And yet, he lowered himself because of his love for you. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus lower himself into the posture of a servant? so that he could adorn you and me with righteousness. I want you to see Isaiah 61.10. Isaiah 61 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's a prophecy of what Jesus did. It says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. See, we have this language of adorning here. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Here's another way of explaining what Isaiah just said. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says this, For our sake he, that's God the Father, made him, that's Jesus Christ, to be sin, to become our sin who knew no sin. He was righteous, but he took on our sin so that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We would be adorned with his righteousness. So here's what that means. It means that when Christ lowered himself and he went to the cross in order to pay for our sins, that not only did he forgive us of our sin so that we would not be judged by God, but he wrapped us, he clothed us, he adorned us with his righteousness. Which means that if you have faith in Christ, that you have been adorned with righteousness from God the Father and he now treats you and he now regards you as if you are perfectly righteous even though you don't live out a perfectly righteous life. He treats and regards you as if you are. You know what that means? It means he guarantees you eternal life. It means that he is never going to stop loving you. He is never going to distance himself from you. He gives you his spirit. He listens to your prayers. He does not withhold relationship from you because you have now been adorned with righteousness. See, your relationship with God is planted in the soil of grace. God does not demand righteousness and withhold relationship from you until you achieve it. That's not how he loves us. No, God has lowered himself in Christ to adorn you with righteousness where he's saying to you, listen, I'm not going to allow the problems that you need to address in your life, namely your sin, to break this relationship. 
so I'm not going to withhold my affection from you. I'm not going to give you the cold shoulder. I'm not going to talk bad about you behind your back. I'm not going to lose interest in you. No, I'm going to treat you as if you are righteous. And in this culture and soil of grace where our struggles are not a threat to our relationship with God, we now have a safe place where God can patiently address our sin and our problems and our struggles, and he can lead us patiently and gently into righteousness. And God does all of this so that we can flourish in our relationship with him. I love Revelation chapter 19. The author uses this imagery of a wedding to illustrate what it's going to be like when Christ returns and and God's people are finally completely cleansed from all of their sin and God comes down and dwells in person with mankind. Look at what Revelation 19 verses 6 to 8 says. It says, Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast and his bride that's you that's me that is his church has prepared herself she's been adorned with righteousness she has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people We will flourish for all of eternity, not because God demanded righteousness from us in our own strength, but because he adorned us with righteousness. Family, this morning, if you're married, I want you to understand that this is the way that God has called you to love your spouse. This is God's command upon you to how you are to love your spouse. Just look at this in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul makes this so clear. Look at verse 22. Ephesians 5, 22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. We don't like that word submit. What does that mean? That means lower yourself beneath your husband so that you can adorn him with righteousness. Don't think of yourself in this relationship. Think of how you serve your husband. But here's the deal. He amps it up even more for the husbands in verse 25. It says this, husbands, love your wives. Oh, that doesn't sound like submission. Well, how to love your wives? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does that mean? It means lower yourself that you may adorn her with righteousness don't think of yourself become a servant to her this is the pathway to a healthy marriage this is the pathway to a romantic marriage this is God's vision for your marriage and listen you will not have the humility to lower yourself You will not have the strength to adorn your spouse with righteousness if you don't believe that this is how God loves you. 
The degree to which you can love your spouse in this way is directly related to the degree that you believe that this is how God loves you in Christ. God is looking to our marriages to preach and display the gospel to the world, to preach and display the unique love that God has for us. And so let me ask, how is the culture in your marriage? What soil is it planted in? Do you adorn your spouse with righteousness or do you more demand righteousness from them? Do you have conditions that they must meet in order for you to no longer withhold relationship from them? Is your marriage a safe place for growth, for vulnerability, for struggle? Is your marriage a safe place for your spouse to grow? Because brothers and sisters, where would any of us be if God did not love us in this way? If he simply demanded righteousness from us instead of adorning us with righteousness. I love this verse, Hebrews 12, 2. It says this, it says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Look at this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is how you plant your marriage in a soil of grace. Right here, Hebrews 12, 2. Look to Jesus who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he's now exalted. He lowered himself beneath you and adorned you with righteousness. And so in your marriage, look to Jesus and with a joyful vision of your marriage out of head in the future, a marriage where there's connection and romance and affection with a joyful vision of your marriage ahead. Look at me, endure the cross. Lower yourself beneath your spouse. Be willing to suffer in that way so that you can adorn them with righteousness. Treat them as if they're righteous, even if they're not. And see how that will take your marriage to new places. If you'd allow me, I'd love to pray for you in your marriage. Let's do that. Father, this morning, as we dive into this amazing yet difficult topic of marriage, a topic, God, that brings so much joy to so many people and so much hurt to so many people. God, I, I pray that you would help us to capture a true vision of what it means to love our spouses in the way that you have loved us. 
And so God, my prayer is less for strength for us to love our spouses in that way. And it's more for God, the, the faith, the belief, the ability to, to rest in the reality that this is how you have loved us, that you, the God of the universe, lowered yourself beneath us, adorned us with righteousness so that we can flourish. Oh God, help us to believe that because only in believing that, only in relying upon that will we be able to love our spouse in the same way. We love you, God. We thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that you adorn us with righteousness instead of expecting righteousness out of us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.